Welcome back to Everything Else Series 3. This week we're going to be discussing my love life and the power of pop. Later on we'll be talking to a writer, photographer, historian, he's the Leonardo da Vinci of 2017. Today we're talking about pop music and love. But before we talk about love, and I know you have a lot to say about this, <laughs> um, this being your summer of love, yeah. I have to admit that I have a strange relationship with pop music. <laughs> what are you going to say with love? No, we with can pop get on music. To, with yeah. pop music, yes. It's only recently that I kind of got to grips with it. When I was a child, I had a real mental problem with pop music. I, I used to think that it was like, it was the devil, it was... Um, it was like white bread. It was like, so. Like, what did yeah. the teenage owl listen to? Uh, well, I'm not sure about the teenage owl. I'm talking more like the seven-year-old owl would listen. Was quite into things like Mozart and classical <laughs> music. And this kind of it's kind Sweet. of stuck with me, you know, through most of my probably my teenage years. Even at uni, I think I was listening to Verdi and things. So, like, it's only now <laughs> that I'm kind of catching up, you know. Getting You're having it. a sort of late adolescence. Yeah, I think I'm having a late adolescence. I'm getting into like Amy Winehouse. <laughs> when I was writing my unpublished novel, I was I was listening to a lot of Rihanna. It was a lot of Rihanna. Yeah, I, I even went for to, motivation. Well, yeah, like I'm more just to wind down, you know, like from the sort right. of heat of of writing my unpublished novel. I, I even went to a, <laughs> to a Rihanna concert. Once. Like, I'm impressed. I was the oldest person at this concert. Like, I wore trainers by a decade. Yeah, by about a decade. I think I wore trainers for for maybe the first time uh, in my whole life um, <laughs> to try and look cool. <laughs> I'm sure you fit right in. So, you know, so I'm yeah. coming at pop from you know, a slightly untutored, untethered way. But so let's move on from that. I, I, have you ever been to a music festival? I've been to Glastonbury. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I've been to one music festival. Which one did you go to? I can't remember the name, but it was raining and I, and I <laughs> disgraced myself during it, I believe. What, what did you do? I got it into my head that, that it was in the spirit of the festival, in this sort of monsoon rain, to rugby tackle strangers um, <laughs> in the mud, which I believe not everyone thought was quite as funny as um, as I did at the time. I was oh, God, I would have early. been... If I had been one of those strangers, that I would not have been happy. Well, I thought I was being a total legend at the time. <laughs> you're new to this whole pop thing, but you're not new to the love thing, and we're going to we're gonna come on to that no, I'm not, later. No, I'm not new to the love thing. I'm an old hand <laughs> yeah. at the love thing. But we're not really talking about my expertise in the, in the field of love, though. This episode is dedicated to the Grizz love machine. This, is, this has been this your happening. summer of love, no? I did get engaged this summer, so in a manner of speaking, yes, it has been my summer of love. I think we need to take a moment just to let that sink in. I think a few of your most ardent listeners have just burst into tears at home. I think they're fine. You think they'll be fine? Yeah, I think they're absolutely fine. Um, you've got engaged to your boyfriend? Tom, yes. Right. Shout um, out. The man of your dreams? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> and that is why we're doing this episode on love, because you're so loved up and that's the main thing you're thinking about. And, and you wanted to pry into my personal life and thought it would be fun, so here we are. <laughs> here we are. Importantly, you're having a first dance. We probably will have a first dance. However, we've struggled to pick a song because I think 
I don't know, it's tricky. A lot of pop music deals with like that first flush, those first few months of falling in love with someone, of kind of lust, or the breakup of a relationship and the heartache at the very end. And, you know, when you're getting married, you're hopefully it's neither of those two things. You're in a kind of, you're in a stable, loving relationship. It's not the first flush, but you're also not wanting to kill each other. And there isn't really a song. I don't know if pop actually describes the feeling of just being in, in a good relationship. But you got married a few years ago. How did you get around this conundrum of the first dance? What did you do? We got around the conundrum by not having one. What would you have had had you had a first dance? I think I would have had a beautiful song, um, Every Sperm is Sacred by <laughs> Monty Python. Did Emily veto that? No, I think she was quite up for it. I think it was more just the, we didn't want to go through the trauma of actually dancing in front of people. It, <laughs> at the wedding was was a beautiful thing, but it was traumatic enough without having to actually make some shapes. Should we have a listen? Yeah, let's have a listen to that. Okay, Al, so speaking of sperms, you have some news. in general. News for us. About specific sperm, my wife is having a baby. Congratulations. Thank you, because not every (laughs) sperm is sacred, but maybe one one was. Um, You know, when's the happy occasion? When is this all happening? It's happening at the beginning of December. Yeah, so that that will make me a real grown-up. You will have to be. Yeah. (laughs) The clock's ticking. It is, indeed. (laughs) But you're excited. Very excited, yeah. So maybe, Al, when you get back from paternity leave, your baby could join us in the, in the studio. He or he? He, yes, he. I think he will definitely want to come on the podcast. <laughs> he's, I think he's going to be a witty baby. and um... <laughs> Love a witty baby. So we are talking about love today because love is in the air. And we decided to talk to our colleague Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, who's the FT's pop critic, because love, of course, is the chief subject of pop music. And we're going to ask Ludo, who is also the FT's love doctor, (laughs) if love can heal the world. Dr Ludo is in the studio. Before we hear from him, let's hear some music. I'd like to see So, Ludo, do you want to teach the world to sing? Perhaps not with my own singing voice, Al. (laughs) I have a a, a bass voice that I won't be inflicting upon the listeners at this particular juncture. Would it be nice to see the world sing? Well, now, the song we just listened to there, The New Seekers, that song came out in 1971. And it has a lovely utopian sentiment of everyone coming together, holding hands and singing together as one. But of course, it then was also based upon a jingle for Coca-Cola, who might, you might think, have a slightly more uh, cynical commercial imperative for having the world come together as one. So I feel the message is somewhat compromised, you might say, which I think is quite typical in this form of love bringing the world together. It hasn't dated very well, though, has it, that song? I was listening to it on the bus this morning. 
it's sort of grated. Um, I disagree with that, actually, Chris. <laughs> Do you like um, it, Al? Well, well, think- Oasis. Oasis went and uh, ripped it off for uh, one of their songs on Definitely Maybe. If it was good enough for Noel Gallagher. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also it's about happiness and, you know, life isn't just some homework. It's, it's a happy song. And these are meant to be happy songs, no? They are meant to be happy songs because they're happiness with a message. If I look around me right now, I see a studio which is full of love. Yes, it's a lovely place. But if we were to step outside this sanctum, we would see a world which I think we might agree is deficient in terms of overall quantities of love. In fact, a world, you might say, which is suffering from the precise opposite. So in which case, 45 years on from the new seekers wanting the world to come together and sing, you'd have to say their prospectus has been a miserable failure. Okay, so are we meant to give up then? Is it impossible that pop music can heal the world? I think that the conditions for pop music as a global art form have never been stronger. This year, we see that huge hit single, Despacito, by uh, Louis Fonsi, the Puerto Rican singer. That has broken the world record for the amount of times it's been streamed. It's been streamed coming up for five billion times, right? I mean, these are extraordinary figures. Helped by Justin Bieber. Helped by Justin Bieber, you're quite right. Let's give credit where it's due there, Griselda, thank you. (laughs) But this song has been listened to by billions of people. That is basically the point, which suggests an audience which is truly global and all-encompassing. So in that respect, pop music, you could say, is the global art form. What then can be done with that global art form is, I guess, the next part. Maybe actually we should rewind a little bit to listen to one of the first songs that was promoting this message of of One Love. Good song, not a good song. I like All You Need Is Love. Yeah, I'm happy to go and fly the flag for All You Need Is Love. You like the lyrics? Do you think they're... It's quite plodding. Yes, it does have a bit. I mean, perhaps the road to the sunny uplands perhaps is a bit of a plod. It's also lined with cheese, isn't it? The road to the sunny uplands. I think this song, so this song was, it came out 50 years ago, uh, 1967, and it was written for the first ever global satellite broadcast. And it was done by 14 countries and was broadcast to 24. And so Lennon wrote this, which he'd had the idea of it prior to this. But at any rate, the song was written for this. And he wanted to come up with a song that would be understood by as many people as possible non-English speakers among them. So he's dumbing down for Johnny Foreigner. Well, I mean, in fact, the lyrics, I would say, Al, I mean, I ask you in that case to please unpack what the lyric, which means that there's uh, nothing you can do that can't be done. I know, I've been... It's I've been profound. Yeah, that is well, I think it's a riddle, but at the same time... <laughs> Isn't it a, just blindingly obvious? What? There's nothing you can do that can't be done. That's, that's just a statement of, it a of logical fact. <laughs> there's nothing you can't do that can't be done. No, you there's, can, nothing you, you, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. No, let's just, face it, we don't have a clue. All right. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just it's like blue is blue, isn't it? Is it? There's nothing you can do that can't be done. I think it's a Brexit means Brexit type thing, which I'm, I'm not really... Okay. I think there's more to... I mean, yeah. Okay, well, the listeners can... They can decide they can for themselves. They can unpick that one. Anyway, the actual song itself, yes, it's got a simplicity to it that is meant to be sort of ultra palatable. Bob Geldof said that he had this in mind when he wrote Do They Know It's Christmas, wanting to have something which is going to be immediately apparent to people. I do, however, I, I like its sort of sweet and plodding nature. I think it really <laughs> speaks of another world, which uh, seems to me to be not necessarily a sort of worse world. But it's a world that has sort of past. I mean, it's, it's a moment that's passed. Yes. A moment in pop music and in time. Yes, I think that that idea of love, that really, that year, 67, was when the Summer of Love began. It, um, I mean, was called the Summer of Love, is when the, the coinage was made. That was when the word love ceased to be purely romantic love, the love me tender, love me do, and it took on this sort of extra 
geopolitical meaning of the idea that love is the thing which can bind everyone together and be some sort of revolutionary force. And indeed, Lenin thought that all you need is love was a sort of propaganda towards some sort of uh, world of ultra-sharing togetherness. Ultimately, a sentimental notion, isn't it? Yes, but I mean, is that bad? I think, though, Al, no, I, mean, I don't think it is. I think the power of all of this is, I think it's all a, a sentimental illusion, isn't it? Like, I didn't, for most of my childhood, I, I didn't cry. And then aged about 21, I found myself watching the closing ceremony of the Winter Olympic Games, <laughs> um, sort of crying like a child. And I think it's the same, isn't it? Because the beauty of just everyone being together, and I don't even like skiing. I think I would I, I would. And so when you, I mean, were racked, but, and you were racked with sobs, great juddering I, sobs, which had never flowed sobs, from you ever in your entire life. All these happy people. It was all the ice skating. It was yeah, just too much. Yeah, all these much. happy people, like, you know, these skiers and, you know, everyone, and everyone together, yeah. and they were singing, and it felt like... You know, it felt like world peace. I, I th- but I mean, presumably your uh, movement into a more sentimental mode of being has been very healthy and productive for you because I see you before me, someone who looks to me like he's really benefited from that big weep. <laughs> uh, exactly. No, I, at that moment, I shared all my cynicism and became a happy, so uh, I, peace-loving guy. I would say that all you need is love. I mean, music appeals to us on an emotional level. That's one of its preeminent functions. And I think that when you listen to a piece of music, it can obviously appeal to us, you know, rationally and, and intellectually. But really, when you're listening to something like that, there you do get swept up in it. And that's the beauty of music, that there is this universalizing impulse within music itself, because we do all react to it. It does have physiological effects, which are sort of unbidden, which... Wherever we are, whatever scales music's being written in, because clearly there are different cultural ways in which music uh, is is made. Nonetheless, the core acoustic side of it is one which can appeal to everyone. Cheesier, the better. I don't know. That's a very loaded term. I don't Cheesier? think it's about cheesiness. I've got something else for us to listen to here. Bob Marley, he's not cheesy. I don't think he could be accused of that. Al, (laughs) you're (laughs) looking at me. No, it's sing-along stuff. There's arguably a link between something like that and like the Nazi anthem, the horse vessel. Um, Were yeah, steady on. And how about Wagner? I thought the Nazis were all listening to Wagner. They were getting down to Wagner. I don't think Marley would have been on their turntable. It's it's the catchy tune. It's the it's the catchy tune. The the idea of everyone marching together, singing together in a chorus. Feeling that they're part of something bigger than just themselves. Yeah, that's to put a very negative gloss on it. But yeah, now you were saying you liked Verdi earlier. I mean, a requiem is exactly that, isn't it? People singing together. I think one other reason is to think about it in terms of just like, can there be one world as a sort of political entity? Is it possible to think about that? And it's so. For instance, I mean, Anthrax, right? Who certainly are not a cheesy band. They went and followed in the eighties when environmental consciousness was growing. They did a song which was also a one world song, where it was welcome to it, one world. I won't roar this out in the style but (laughs) welcome to it one world don't abuse it that was their song from 1987 called one world right and by then 87 was one of the sort of uh, high points in environmental consciousness so the idea that there is a world that we all share had taken on a political meaning which certainly we couldn't go and equate to fascism or some sort of awful oppressive totalitarian regime which is being marching along to the sand of the new seekers but since then so 
fast forwarding 30 years, are pop songs now, I mean, do you think they have that same kind of political, global ambition? Or, or have we sort of gone back to talking about love and lust well, and sex? I think that's the curious thing, that whereas music itself has become increasingly global, so whilst that is happening, the architecture for the global pop song has never been sort of more strong. The sort of ambition to go and write them has, has kind of disappeared, I think. And certainly the idea that love, the way in which that is conceived, has not disappeared because of Ariana Grande, of course, did her One Love concert in Manchester following yeah. the awful atrocity in the Manchester Arena at one of her concerts. Um, and that used you know, very explicitly the same language, all you need is love. But the actual songs which were expressing this, I think, have sort of disappeared and they've been replaced by other things. There's a kind of cynicism. No, I don't think cynicism. I think that lovers retreated back to the romantic meaning and that what we see now is much more, for instance, the breakup album. I'm forever writing about breakup albums. <laughs> I'm always writing about breakup <laughs> albums. So of which something like Adele's 25 would be the sort of preeminent example, yeah. which is bought by more or less every single person in the world. The actual songs themselves don't address anything current in terms of what's going on. I mean, which isn't to say that they're not good songs. It's sort of another matter but entirely. But it's about the self. But it's about the breakup. And I think that the breakup song is one way of bringing drama into the love song while stripping love of any sort of wider meaning. And the other one, which is related to that, is the self-empowerment song, which is also becoming increasingly big. I think Bieber would be an example there. Believe is a, is a song which is all about believing in yourself. But I do so. think there's something important about the self-empowerment anthem because... I don't know. I mean, I was looking back at the sort of list of these one love kind of hippie-ish songs and a lot of them, correct me if I'm wrong, Lido, but are written by white men in kind of relative positions of power. I think now we're seeing self-empowerment sort of hmm. anthems and I, I guess we have been for a long time by by women who were never sort of proposing one love in the first place. And this, for example, is Beyonce. Not my favourite ever Beyonce track, but one that is about we girls, we can do it. That's very important, but but it's, it doesn't have the ambition of like universal peace, does it? No, and I don't think that she would. I think maybe women are perhaps not naive enough, or you might say not arrogant enough, to think that world peace can be achieved through a pop song. They instead are saying we, as kind of individual selves, can empower ourselves and as, as a movement, as a collective, that will have a force. But I don't think that they're saying we can make the world more peaceful. Alternatively, Griselda, could it be that the sort of one love song that you say was mainly by men from positions of power, although Marley obviously wouldn't come into I mean, that, yeah, I think fall I, into that, yeah. that, that convenient metric. Yes, um, but you could then say, well, why should it not be something that women should do as well? I mean, it doesn't invalidate it simply because it was a whole lot of men doing it before. So if, for instance, we have Beyonce, you might say that if the girls do get to run the world, would there then be the love song of the whatever, you know, unite the world through love? Could that then follow? I mean, is it possible to recuperate it from that perspective? I think Beyonce would say, and I would agree, that if women, if girls were running the world, 
probably would be a better place and a more peaceful place. I mean, I think that's just true. Yeah, I think we agree. With yeah, that. okay, yeah. fine. I think that the one reason why it could be, why I love, why I would like to see love in that big, grand, Lennon-style sense being sort of brought back is because it's been totally co-opted by, by tech companies and advertising at the moment. I mean, at the moment, you have Samsung, its last uh, advertising campaign for its latest gadget was all about people from all around the world singing different national anthems, all very sort of one world. Whenever you walk around the tube, you see these great big adverts saying, all you need is love, which is advertising Amazon's Alexa, its robotic assistant. Facebook has now sort of tried to connect the world. Yeah, and I think that language has been totally co-opted by these companies. And I quite like to see the pop stars, male or female (laughs) or whatever, taking it back. It's not remotely surprising, is it, that these big companies should take it on? Because it's all propaganda, isn't it? I mean, Lennon was talking about this being... His song, All You Need Is Love, is propaganda. This is what I think it is, has a cheesy core, because it's not high art. It's about pulling emotional strings. And it's it's inevitable that the most popular songs are, in a way, the most basic, but also that the most successful ad campaigns are just plucking basic strings and like you know pressing buttons they're saying ludo cry now but it's about what they're trying to do with that i mean if they're trying to sell you a product from amazon or if they're trying to that's not what lennon was doing you know he did have higher and i do see what you mean about the cynicism about it and obviously the idea about a whole load of rich pop stars you know warbling about trying to make the world a better place by loving one another when they're not really actually prepared to go and sort of um, give up much of their own is does stick in the craw somewhat but all i really mean is is that is there some way to be able to extract from this idea of everyone together we're all in this together globally seven billion people is that possible to extract from that something which is actually sort of genuinely uh, useful and i would say that yes in a world which is becoming progressively uh, interconnected and a world in which we're aware of the fact that environmental damage is something which affects everyone you know so in other words there's not a single part of the planet which does not have some sort of contamination from man-made activities. So in that respect, is it possible just to bring out from within this some way of being able to think about that idea that we are responsible for what happens over there and what happens over there has a degree of responsibility for what happens here? And then maybe the pop song can do that. And it's a big, it's a big ask, but you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. You know, that's what pop music can do. Let's have some faith in it. Okay. So what's the plan? How are we going to do it? Well, I, what I think we should do is we should have a concerted campaign to stop pop stars from banging on about their breakups. Or indeed that how much they want to go and believe in themselves and that they should look outwards more and just like really pull their socks up and just start loving the world. Okay, (laughs) well, the campaign starts here. So if that was the main course, let's move on to the cheese board. All right, food and drink editor. Uh, So, Grizz, could you tell us a little bit about what's on this cheese board? (laughs) Teju Cole is our interviewee this week. Teju is the author of several books, which I love, including Open City. Al, how did you get here this morning? Well, as usual, I I walked here. So your commute is always walking? It is, yeah. Come rain or shine. Rain it was today. Um, Indeed, I tramped bravely through the rain. So I think Open City would appeal to you because Julius, the main character... The book is basically, he's walking around Manhattan and he's, it's sort of stream of consciousness. He's thinking about things. He's thinking about his past and his future. He's thinking about the past and the future of the city. He's looking at monuments in the city and seeing sort of layers of history in them. And it's a lot about kind of the life of New York as much as it is about his life. 
It's a sort of psychogeography, which I imagine is the kind of stuff that you think about when you're walking to work. You're looking at London. I think that's right. I've read Will Self's psychogeography. Well, I've read the first chapter. <laughs> so I shall definitely move on to Teju Cole's Open City. I did enjoy reading Blind Spot very much. So as well as being a novelist, Teju Cole is an essayist, photographer, photography critic, and his new book, Blind Spot, is a mixture of photographs and they're not exactly captions because they're quite, in some cases, not directly related to the photograph itself, but I think he calls them kind of voiceovers. They're these little passages of text on the opposite page to the photographs. Many of our listeners will know Tedrick Cole through his journalism as well as his books. Yeah, he writes a lot for places like The New Yorker, but he writes very widely on lots of different subjects. I mean, he's trained as an art historian, but I think some of his most sort of relevant writing that he's doing today is about race in America and about sort of public monuments and the history of America and how it deals with its difficult history. And the week that he came into the studio actually was the week of Charlottesville, which of course was prompted by this fierce debate around Confederate statues and what it means to sort of venerate this history. One of the striking things about the interview is that he never, he doesn't mention Donald Trump by name. He refers to him as that man. And when he says that man should make our blood boil, that's powerful, isn't it? Yeah, I think he feels strongly about this stuff. He's an American citizen. He was born there, but he grew up in Nigeria and he came back again as a college student. And he writes about race, as I said, and he writes about being a citizen of two places and kind of seeing it from an outsider's point of view. In the spring of 1507, Albrecht Dürer returned from his second trip to Italy. He had seen Leonardo's oil sketches and been impressed by their use of drapery to suggest form, movement, wind and light. A folded drapery is cloth thinking about itself. Under pressure from itself, or the influence of external agents, a material adopts a topographical surface. A material around the axis of itself faces some part of itself and confounds its inside and outside. A drapery study of Dürer's from 1508 shows the influence of a sketch of Leonardo's from about two decades earlier. Folding, falten, to bring something together and also to iterate that bringing together a joining and a repetition. In the crumples, pleats, gathers, creases, falls, twists, and billows of cloth is a regular irregularity that is like the surface of water, like channels of air, like God made visible. The human is the divine enfolded in skin. There is a curious comment about folds in John's account of the resurrection, a folded cloth that remained folded even as events unfolded. Quote, then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. End quote. In Nuremberg, almost within sight of Dürer's house, I saw, about eight minutes after they began their stellar journey, some several rays of the sun describing the folds on the curtains of my hotel room. That was Teju Cole reading from his latest book, Blind Spot. Teju, thank you so much for coming in. It's a real pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. There's a lot to unpack, to unfold, if you will, in that passage. And I'm interested in, in this idea of God made visible, which is one of the phrases that you use. It seems like 
a lot of these pieces of, of writing which are matched to photographs are about this kind of divinity or beauty in the everyday. Can you tell me something about that, about the presence of, of something divine in the mundane? I think one of um, the things I'm trying to do in this book is to keep alive a sense of wonder about the world, certainly about the visible world, in a way that is not utterly dependent on religion, but that allows the language of religion and the language of myth to illuminate what has been looked at. As I composed the book, it ended up really taking on this very strongly both biblical but also Homeric tone and vocabulary. These are just stories that help me think about what I'm looking at. If you're sitting in a room and you're looking at the light playing on curtains and the curtains are falling into folds, you could deal with that on a strictly scientific level. But I think there's something to be gained from also remembering what an interesting and complicated history folds have and the idea of a fold is kind of an interesting one because it's as much about, well, it's sort of half about what we can see and half about what we can't see. And it's interesting that you've, you've called the book Blind Spot. Why, yeah. why is that? But this book is called Blind Spot in the first case because of um, an incident I had with my eyes. In 2011, I woke up one morning and I was blind in my left eye. I just simply couldn't see out of it. And I wasn't in pain and I hadn't had any medical trouble with the eyes before. I went blind overnight. And after a very sort of complicated series of um, medical consultations, a doctor said I had something called big blind spot syndrome. Wow. Uh, papilophlebitis. Yeah, I thought it was a bit on the nose, <laughs> especially because I had written about the blind spot in my previous book. It brought me into a state of sort of heightened <laughs> vigilance and attentiveness where my own scene was concerned. I was already an avid photographer and... I love to look at pictures. I love to look at the world. And I had this moment where I thought, oh, that could be taken away from me. My photography changed. It became a bit quieter, a bit more intense. And this book really is about the love of seeing and the contingency in everything we see. It relates very closely, I, I feel, to Open City, this idea of looking very intensely at things and seeing not just or seeing what's on the surface, but also seeing sort of beneath the surface, seeing kind of layers of history, of memory. Do you find you have a very sort of active imagination as, as you walk around and you look at things? Do you, do you see history as a present living thing? I absolutely do. I mean, so I've always been concerned with what's hidden and what's not seen properly. And then I end up having all these eye troubles as if to say, yes, there's, there's always something we're not seeing. <laughs> As frightening as it was, it was also permission to keep exploring this mode. And I like that you've compared the two books because the four books I've done, Every Day is for the Thief is a novella, Known and Strange Things is an essay collection. All four of them are me. They, they all return into the same concerns about contingency, about fragility, about the imperfectness of our knowledge. But I feel that Open City and Blind Spot are the two that are trying to do this in a high lyrical mode that are attempting to do this through the language of flow. It's a very peculiar kind of sequel yeah. to that earlier book. Yeah. Yes. And you said that you're interested in this idea of the continuity of places. So how things in the character Julius and Open City, how his sort of train of thought works, how one image jumps to another. And the same in this book in Blindspot, when we flip the pages, things 
in a way seem quite different, but for you they're connected. Is that they're right? always connected. I, it's almost as though you had all these houses on the street, they all had their own front doors, but unknown to you, they were all connected by a basement. One of the things all places have in common is they have a history that is not immediately apparent in what you see there. Almost all contemporary places we might go to are also touched by global trade, universal politics. All countries contain Chinese-made goods. All countries are under tremendous pressure from American foreign policy. Italo Calvino said they're really all just one city, and all that changes is the name of the airport. And uh, having gone to 40 countries now, <laughs> I feel as though he might be onto something. And this is not a bad thing. It actually means that I can come into a place like London, even though I live in a place like New York, and almost be continuing a conversation with you, even though we've not met before. We both share in universal culture. So there's continuity, but it seems that there's this idea of the acceptance of difference as well. Farouk, one of the characters in Open City, talks about difference containing its own value. Can you say something about difference and the idea particularly of sort of of racial difference, of, of kind of geographical difference? I think assimilation can be a very strange demand to put on people because very often it's an assimilation to certain kinds of values and, you know, certain things that are considered virtues. If we actually truly had a common culture and the idea of assimilation was, listen, if you come to London, you've got to, you know, wear a tracksuit and listen to dance hall. <laughs> you know, that could be interesting. But but of course, we would see it also as limited. Well, usually when people are talking about assimilation, they're saying, well, you've got to come here and care about what our grandparents cared about. I think that not just Western societies, all societies have to continue to work on the language that they use for inclusiveness. What does it mean to live in complicated societies where there are many very different kinds of people? One of those things is what kinds of pressure we put newcomers under. Another is how those of us who are already in a place deal with the history of that place. The history is really innocent. I was going to ask you about this because something that connects your work seems to be an interest in, in public monuments, in public spaces and... The things that we oh, choose and why would to you, put and why would you ask about on. that? <laughs> why would I ask about it now? Yeah, yeah that's right. I noticed as well on your on your Instagram feed, mm. you're an avid Instagrammer, and I'm yes. an avid follower of your Instagram. Thank you. you posted a picture of a statue of Theodore Roosevelt outside the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. Why do you tell me something about why you posted that picture? Yeah. And about this idea of statues. I come to this from a sort of peculiar position. The only thing I've ever studied in school is art history. I have a very sort of sensitive position with regards to material preservation. I'm not an iconoclast in that sense. But my own politics also helped me to understand that the things that we valorize in a society are actually consequential. In any given society, we say this is what's important. That's a conversation we're having in that society about what that society is. The people who defend a distasteful or hateful statue remaining up are often doing so from the point of view that it has always been there, that it is permanent. Very often it hasn't even been there that long. That's what's really interesting. Like all these Confederate statues in the US, they were only put up in 1920. 
They weren't put up at the end of the Civil War or during it. They were put up in the lifetime of some people who are still alive. So that plinth was empty, and it can be empty again. The Roosevelt statue, I would not necessarily advocate for statues of Roosevelt to be taken down, by the way. This particular statue shows him with two slaves, uh, an African-American one to his left and a Native American one to his right. And he's astride a horse. So when somebody says, oh, where does it stop? You can't take down the statue of a, a previous president. I'm saying, well, I, he's not what makes it interesting. The fact that in front of one of the most famous museums in the world, the only statuary group shows a black person and a native person in a condition of servitude is definitely worth thinking about. And if you say you can, we can't take it down, I have to ask, what are you so afraid of? It feels like the place where you live, the US, is going through a kind of momentous period of change of the sense of revolution or revolution that's trying to happen. Absolutely. In an essay you wrote, The White Saviour Industrial Complex, you wrote, there is an expectation that we can talk about sins, but no one must be identified as a sinner. And when I read that, I was thinking about Charlottesville mm-hmm. and about this response that has been on Twitter, hashtag, this is not us, which has come from mm-hmm. some whites talking about mm-hmm. this. What's your response to everything that's happening there? Well, I'm thinking about it a lot. And I think that for myself, I want to inhabit this tricky position of having a strong and visceral reaction to things that are very visceral and very upsetting. And at the same time, hold a very thoughtful position on these things as well, and not sweep all things away. One of my reactions is that there's a place for protest. And there's a place for very powerful principled objection. I think we are facing an apocalyptic crisis with this person as president. And so our blood has to boil in response to that. And we have to be courageous and we have to oppose. Statues have to come down, protests have to be done, sit-ins have to happen, people have to be heckled. At the same time, part of the peril we're facing is that in fighting the monster, we could overturn the protections that are available for us inside that society to such a degree that either this monster or another one could use them against us. I think what a writer has to offer and what any artist really has to offer is an example of freedom. When I walked in here, you were not quite able to predict what I would say because I try to be free in my thinking. I mean, you have a general idea of what my politics are, but I am thinking through things, and I think that's what the writer can offer. I'm not here to represent my gender or my race or my nationality or my parents' language or the U.S. Do you feel that too often you are called upon to represent, for example, your race? Not too often, because, I mean, I I have the right to say no, and I say no as often as I please. So it's not onerous or burdensome. I think it is very important to speak in defense of the undermined, the neglected, the disregarded. And I think I do a fair bit of it. But sometimes I'm also just interested in writing beautiful passages or making a beautiful photo and having that do a different kind of work. There's a kind of, um, there's a kind of outsider-ishness in a sense, to your writing. And I mean that in the best possible way. These are kind of 
novelistic essays and essayistic novels, if you like. There's a blurring there. Can you say something about your style and how you how you came to it? I think you're right. It is part of that not being fully at home anywhere. It meant that I did not wish to sort of sit down and write a conventional novel. I didn't go get an MFA and write a multi-generational family saga. You know. <laughs> the Great American Novel. Yeah, the Great American Novel or the the continuation of the Great African Novel or whatever. Again, it goes back to freedom. It's like, oh, maybe I can do this. This other thing, is this possible? Maybe this is why Naipaul is important to me as a thinker and, and Nabokov, you know, and Joseph Conrad. People who sort of had to put one foot in one place and one foot in the other. And because of that, they've been sort of compelled to make it new. They don't have the reassurance of just the one home all the time. I could never write in a purely representative way for Nigeria or for the U.S. And so since I already was moving away from that, genre was just the next thing to go. Why be trapped in forms established already? There are lots of digressions in both the books, even in the passage you read at the beginning, it sort of moves from one thing to another. The through line is winding. Yeah, but you know what? That's so old-fashioned of me, actually. While I'm in London this time around, I'm staying in Bloomsbury and not far away from Virginia Woolf. And she was certainly an insider. And yet, if you think about how one thought moves to another in her work... I'm not really doing anything more radical than that. And that's more than 100 years ago. Except that I guess most novels being written these days are 150 years out of date. So <laughs> so being only a century outdated makes my, my work seem uh, new. Um, she was there blazing the trail. Yeah. So Virginia Woolf and James Joyce really matter very much to me in terms of examples of how can the velocity of thinking be annotated. For example, you don't use speech marks. There's a kind of interiority. Yeah, I tend not to, and that's actually straight out of Joyce. That kind of Um, barrier between what's inside and what's spoken outside is is taken down. And it also then affects the sort of the truth value, the truth claim that you're making as a storyteller. Because if you put quote marks around it, you're saying, and then the character said exactly this. There's a kind of slipperiness to the omniscience of Julius as a narrator. As it goes on, I I started to doubt some things that he remembered or how he remembered them. Absolutely, yeah. You know, what is a novel up to? Is Is it a god giving us a world? Or is it, as it sometimes claims to be... When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program. A story being told by a person that is invented by me. So the godlike element I've received in the background, I've let Julius tell the story. And as you go deeper into the book, without knowing him very well, without knowing my biography very well, you might even think it's an autobiographical novel. As you go deeper into the book, you start thinking, no way. You know, <laughs> if you look at all the books on on awards sh- shortlists this year, they've all just sort of gone back to, you know, sort of doing Jane Austen. And, uh, you but you know. have no beginning, middle and end in your books. There's no beginning. There's, it's all middle. Middle with some sense, hopefully, but it's all middle. In medias res, because it's like a piece of reality and you cut off one bit here and cut off one bit here. It's like a ribbon. And now you've got a ribbon. Teju, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. A pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. That's it for this week. Teju Cole's Blind Spot is available at all good bookshops. And you can read Dr. Ludo's piece online at ft.com. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be talking about political theatre with the playwright James Graham, whose plays Ink and Labour of Love are both playing in the West End at the moment. On the same street. And I'll be speaking to Natalia Cohen, the crazy woman who rode across the Pacific. <laughs> Tell us about your first dances, the songs you fell in love to, and what you think about Teju Cole's work at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everything else podcast. And or you can send us an email at everything else at ft.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen online at ft.com forward slash everything else. Please also leave us a rating or a review on iTunes to help other people discover the podcast. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and Alexander Gilmore. Our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Come on, it's Grizz. (laughs) 